All right, so hello everybody. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. You know, I was looking at my email this morning, Susan, and I realized that the first time that we actually communicated with each other was on the 21st of January. And wow. here we are now on the 27th of September, recording our first podcast together. So that just shows you, listeners, how well we prepare because we really <laughs> care about you. So today Don't we're going to raise their expectations that much, please. Oh, no, you guys are going to love this one, I swear <laughs> it. So today we are going to bring a conversation with someone called Catherine Barnes. Now, Catherine Barnes is someone that I've worked with directly in Myanmar. She's currently a member of the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University. And she's been engaged in direct peacebuilding work in the United States and also globally for about 30 years. So she's someone that I think of as a real thinker and doer, and especially doing when it comes to practices of creating space for dialogue, which Lord knows is certainly something that we need more of given the current climate of, of polarization globally and, and in our countries. So one thing that I really like about this conversation with Catherine is that she really demystifies peace processes. So these political processes that try to end civil wars and countries that seem a long way away, she speaks from an insider perspective and she tells us a lot about what works well and what we often do really poorly and she's many other things I think that she brings up that are fascinating, but I know that you wanted to make a couple of comments as well, Susan. I think, I think it's exactly what I really liked about this, the demystification of peace processes. And in some ways at the international level, how sort of behind the times, I don't mean to sound critical, but uh, some of these processes can be. One of the things that I have stood for is the, you know, I'm a really interdisciplinary person. And I really have thought, wow, there's a lot to be learned from organization development and management theory and what's happening in the peace building field. And this is one of them. One of the things that happened to me is seeing the limitations of mediation in a complex system. Uh, you get to a place, you can't just pick the top leaders and resolve it between them and expect the system to fall in line. And so I got really interested in a lot of large group intervention processes. And we've talked on this podcast with many of those people, like Sandra Janoff, about the future search process. It's so spectacular in terms of getting the whole system in the room. We've interviewed Harrison Owen on this podcast about the use of open space technology, which is based on chaos theory and complexity, and again, brings all the stakeholders into the room. And I have used, the, for instance, that process I've used with warring factions with Pretty amazing results in terms of high conflict situations, as has Harrison and many others. But um, yeah, so I was um, really interested in her talking about that. And also the other thing about it that we also know from OD, from organization development, is that with leaders, they do have to let go of the results if you want to do a more whole systems intervention. You can't just bring the system into the room and say, this is what the outcome is going to be. You actually have to let go. And I think that's one thing that Catherine's also talking about as well, that you have to allow some self-organizing to happen here. One other thing that she stimulated in me was also the interview with Charles Crawford, um, the former British diplomat, who is talking about, again, that this was in Bosnia, but the dilemma 
of just working at the high level like that among the quote unquote, the leaders of the factions that are fighting. Because what he, you know, what Charles talks about is the problem with that is you then have to cater to the two extremes and you really missed the middle. And in Bosnia, he thought that was really a big failure of that negotiation. Um, she also brings up in relation to Bosnia, the idea that we thought, or one side at least, thought that the war was going to be won by bombing. And she talks a lot about how we use coercion as a tool to try and get people to acquiesce to our goals. This is really central thesis of what she's saying. We don't collaborate very well anymore. The European Union project that arose out of our understanding of the Second World War, the problems of polarization that we have in so many countries, we're addicted to this type of coercion. This is what she talks about, addiction to coercion. And we need to find ways back to actually having dialogue between people and finding collaborative ways, not spending all of our global resources on financing coercive strategies, but working on solving problems together. So I think that's a fantastic imperative for us all. And I think you're all really going to enjoy this episode. Yeah, here, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, I hear a lot of a lot of people who like coercive strategies talk about, well, everybody, you know, they, how much they want peace. Well, everybody wants peace in theory. But if you're not aware or able to actually implement a kind of a strategy that actually allows for everybody to actually have a real conversation, whether it be at the global level or at the more local level, you're not going to get there. So anyway, I think you'll find this episode to be really fantastic. So Catherine, I'm so happy that you've joined us today on the Peacebuilding Podcast and to have a wide-ranging conversation with you about your history of, of peacebuilding and, and where you find yourself now, uh, looking through the lens of complexity and wondering about challenges of peace processes in other countries as well as some of the challenges within the United States, where you are from. I wanted to share some stories and experiences of how we met and my impression and experience with you. Now, I, I remember working together and meeting in, in Myanmar. And one thing that always struck me is when you visited Myanmar, you didn't spend a lot of time in Yangon where most of the expats are. You would be straight out and you would be facilitating or training facilitators outside of Bago in a week or two week long sessions and then you would be back out of the country. That's quite unusual for people that worked in Myanmar as an expat because expats often hung around with other expats. And when I talk to you now and you're relating how you're still back in the United States, but seeing people from Myanmar that are visiting, it reminds me that your approach has always been to walk hand in hand with the people that you are supporting or mentoring or working with in peace building, which I really admire because I think it speaks to an approach which is about mentoring and accompaniment and walking hand in hand um, rather than being an outside expert that is there to train and help and educate the people of conflict affected countries. So that's something that I've really admired about your work. Now, Catherine, 
uh, you have a diverse background. I think a lot of people talk about being a scholar practitioner and aspire to this idea of a scholar practitioner. But I think in the work that you've done in supporting people in conflict-affected contexts, whether that be in supporting and facilitation and other types of, of work that you can talk about, you have a, a pedigree as a practitioner, which is impressive, but you write and you reflect and you are a scholar now and have been for some time at Eastern Mennonite University. And I think you, you blend and, and work between those worlds very well. So I'm very happy to have that conversation with you. I would like to know, what was it about this world of peace building? What was it about your experience in life that led you to where you are now, that got you involved in social justice and peace building, or however you would define that, and maybe share with us a bit about your pathway and, and how you define it as what you do. Thank you, Stephen. I think I think I remember when we first um, met. Also, you came out to go to this beautiful jungle training center. It was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Very, very natural. Very open. I think it was hot season. <laughs> we were sweating like crazy. I think I remember, you know, always having that feeling of being there, of a total immersive experience. We often talk about, and I think that um, that it was also something I appreciated about you that you were also someone who didn't spend a lot of time in the capital except for, you know, as family needed to. I think that that's also part of the joy is being completely immersed, completely immersed in relationships with people who are in the struggle over the long term and figuring out how to support them best. Um, so I, I think you're pretty spot on there in terms of approach. And I guess that that maybe connects in with what was my impetus into this field? I'd say in my teens and kind of college days, I very much took a social justice activist position. You know, it was always protests and die-ins. It was the anti-apartheid movement. It was anti-racism in the U.S. I was actually part of the um, Rainbow Coalition trying to get Jesse Jackson elected in the 80s. <laughs> it sort of dates me back a bit. And then after college, my, my first uh, jobs were in rural West Virginia. I'm from the, the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia, and I was um, over with my uncle and aunt over in West Virginia, and they got me hooked up in working with the domestic violence center over there. And while I was working there, I think that was when I really, really first started feeling this, how deeply woven in and intergenerational systems of violence and conflict can be. And I felt so often so powerless and so hopeless. And I began to realize that I was probably not a particularly well-placed person to sort of support um, families in trying to figure out how to get safe and how to, to heal and to transform. I think I was also a bit kind of feeling like the system, it was, it was all so much bigger than I could do by helping one family at a time. Now I kind of realize that probably sometimes helping one family at a time may be the only way. But anyways, I had this kind of impatience, and also this impatience of youth of wanting to go out and see the world and be a part of things. And I was in a, a point of transition and I ended up going to a conference 
and running into a man named Dudley Weeks, who was one of the very early conflict resolution practitioner. At the time, it was a very brand new field called conflict resolution. And he was doing a lot of work with gangs at the time talk with gang members, bringing them into um, conflict resolution and dialogue processes. And it turned out there was something else, which is that he was a Quaker. And I came from a Quaker background. And within Quakerism, there's a really fundamental theological belief, but it comes up very much in our practice and value system that there is that of God within everyone. And so I think for him, that connection of there is that of God within these um, gang members was guiding him in this conflict resolution approach. And when I, I was almost like a light turned on and I was like, wait a minute, here's how you can start to shift in sort of the activist approach of marching on the streets and trying to only focus on mobilizing pressure to find leverage to do change and often having a oppositional image with those who you opposed. What would be involved if you were to talk? What would be involved if you engage in dialogue? And so from that, I started on this path of conflict resolution. Like I said, this is the early 90s. It's a brand new program, and I ended up going the academic route into it. And so I think because I started out with it from an academic pathway from George Mason University, which is pretty much the first program at the time that was doing PhDs in conflict analysis and resolution, I think I always kind of combined that research and practice approach. So I, I think that that brought me through. And over the time, over the years, I've shifted quite a bit. I think I've often really admired people who sustain and stay with the context for years and years and years at a time and have this deep commitment, whether it's because it's their conflict context or somehow they've had this set of relationships that they um, have developed through work engagement and really stay with it for decades. And I always felt a bit, because I've tended to work in lots and lots of different places in the world, I, I think I've probably worked in about 30 different countries. Um, some, some level of involvement in about 30 different countries. These are all the ones that are fixed, right? Like all, all the success. Yeah, oh yes, of course, of course. Because <laughs> I just come and wave my magic wand. <laughs> But I, I think I, I felt like a dilettante sometimes of kind of doing all these different things. And at some point along the way, someone um, gave me this image that I realized has been a bit of a, a metaphor for how I've approached things, which is that in ancient times, there were people who were seed carriers who would travel from place to place collecting seeds and then offering them at the next place that they were and people would take the seeds that sounded appealing to them and maybe they'd work in that context and maybe they wouldn't. And somehow <laughs> I feel like that's, that's been um, the kind of a role that I've brought into my life as I've gone through this work. And maybe some of the seeds are, are ideas and approaches. Increasingly, I think I'm trying to actually be more and more of a gardener myself. Um, but literally, I, I we actually do a lot of gardening, but also in my practice of really trying to do a lot more with enriching the soil and choosing the seeds that we'll take and uh, nurturing them over time. And so I think the, the, the range of my practice has perhaps narrowed a bit and focused and deepened more as I try to, to plant those seeds that I've been collecting <laughs> these many years. And is that process of carrying 
different seeds or experimenting with different approaches and you said that that has changed more to a gardening or a nurturing approach, is that because you've discovered particular theories of change or particular ideas that you think have a particular relevance that you want to nourish? Or is it because you you feel that the process of gardening in itself is more important than just planting the seeds and going to another place? Um, some of it may be phase of life and just feeling more settling down and wanting to, to be sustained. I think I would have always admired gardeners, but just not felt myself in a position to, to commit to commit to the garden, so as to keep the, the metaphor going. But I think also, okay, just to extend this a little bit further, once again, I'm living in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia now, and there's lots of people who are friends who are permaculture people, in this kind of notion that if you plant things in relation to each other, that they will create a self-sustaining system that will enable everything to thrive more. So yeah, and that really leads us well into the complexity approach to peace building because it's how do we help to nurture environments that will sustain themselves over a longer period of time and kind of address the things that may be choking out um, growth in life and, and healthiness and kind of, or, you know, the things that are kind of extracting value all the time without uh, contributing value back in. So I'm, I'm you know, obviously talking fairly metaphorically right now. <laughs> Put that down into some more specifics. Um, but I think the other thing is, is that I've gotten more and more focused on my work as a facilitator and a process designer. And so this notion also of playing a role that is about how to help people come together to have the conversations that they need to have to get into right relationship with each other and to be more creative and figuring out how to address the conflicts or the um, dilemmas that they're facing this time. So I, I would really like to go deeper with you about process and about facilitation. First of all, I want to help our listeners to understand the idea or the field of complexity as it relates to peace building. When we talked about this and we had a, a chance conversation a couple of weeks ago where we both realized that we were exploring this lens of complexity to understand peace building, I was very happy to hear that there is others that are going down that road. And just to try and explain what that means a little bit, for me at least, there was a, a report that came out just a couple of days ago written by David Harland, Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. And he's talking about the decline in the success of negotiated agreements in the last decade. And one of the reasons that he pointed to was the increased complexity of modern conflicts. And so you can define that in a number of ways, but the splitting up of opposition movements into so many different fragmented forces, uh, the transnational dynamics of, of terrorism, the increased dynamism of conflict insofar as people can organize through the internet, through social media in ways that change dynamics of conflict much more quickly. Uh, geopolitical changes, you don't have 
stable unipolar uh, dynamics to the same extent. You have these multipolarity of forces that influence conflicts, and in that environment, actors like the UN or the United States or any dominant state can't have as easily a top-down pre-planned approach to trying to manage and implement a war to peace transition. It's much messier. And so complexity theory, uh, systems thinking, are uh, ways of thinking adopted much more broadly from other disciplines that can help us to understand how can we understand conflict and how can we engage in peacemaking in ways that are more adaptive and able to handle those complex dynamics. I believe that that is something we need to do better as peace builders. And one thing that David Harland was saying is that the UN is not very agile and able to do that. And that will not come as a, as a big surprise to many. So this is a field which you are, as someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the design of peace processes, is grappling with this ideas of complexity. I would be very interested to hear what you've started to think. And we had a particularly interesting conversation in which you talked about how you see some similarity across different contexts from the fractures and tensions of the United States, for example, and structures of dominance and oppression, as well as completely foreign contexts where there's war to peace transitions, but you see some similarities there. So that's a very long introduction to a question. What kind of thinking is being inspired for you about complexity? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that is a, a big topic. Um, Hmm. So maybe take this kind of uh, the entryway in from the point you talked about from David Harlan's observations and also the notion of the UN and then maybe pause and then think about complexity more generally and cross systems. And so, so I think there is a connection in there. So I think one of the things that's quite interesting is there's still especially a lot of those that work in the peacebuilding field who are rooted from kind of an international relations background, I feel like often approach these from the perspective of mediation. And I think that that leads to a number of challenges. First of all, I think, so once again, I entered this field in the early 90s and that at that point in time, it was you know very soon after the end of the kind of bipolar world of the, the Cold War you know, US-USSR confrontation. And prior to that time, I think that a lot of the ways of approaching war had been mediation and negotiation to end interstate wars, you know, from the international system. That was the kind of lens. And this notion that you could bring um, the leaders of the different states in question, or maybe some breakaway state entity, into reaching a negotiated agreement that would somehow deliver the armed forces who had been semi-organized or incredibly organized, if it's its conventional army, um, into an agreement that would end the war decisively was very much the template, the image that was in mind. And that was very much the model that was brought to a lot of the intrastate conflicts 
that really characterized a lot of the peace building of the 90s. And I think that there was still a lot of this image that, okay, we can have, you know, the leader of the, the rebel faction and the leader of the country uh, sit down and we can mediate an agreement between them and that will end the war. And this was very much the point at which I was really getting involved more and more in, in looking at and learning from peace processes. And I was working with an organization called Conciliation Resources as head of the Accord program of learning from peace processes at the time. And I remember feeling, you know, sitting there one night as we were coming to an end of uh, producing a publication on Tajikistan, which is one of the probably most obscure wars of the 90s that actually had a, a very well organized mediated process by the United Nations. And I was talking to one of UN staffers who had really supported all the special representatives of the Secretary General, i.e. all the mediators of the UN, there had been a succession of them, and was asking him because one some of the other authors of his publications were talking about, well, there are all of these these things that got left unaddressed in this negotiation. I mean, basically, it cemented in the balance of power that remained at the end of the war. A little bit of power sharing arrangements put in, but the you know the state had been captured by a, a new group, the Kulabis, as it happened. A new faction of the country had basically won the balance of power, and somehow the way the peace process ended up being, it sort of cemented in that power base. And um, there were lots and lots of issues that had been left unaddressed. And I was asking this UN staffer about this and he goes, oh, well, those are things to be dealt with the day after <laughs> an agreement is signed. Our job is to end the war. Okay. And I was, we were at the same time kind of putting to bed a, an issue on uh, the peace process in Sierra Leone, which had replicated a lot of those similar sort of dynamics. I mean, in Sierra Leone, the agreement actually gave the leader of the rebel forces, the ones that had gone around chopping off people's arms before um, going to the voting block, he was made uh, the Minister of Mines. <laughs> that was the price of signing the peace agreement. And it was just this feeling like this notion of mediation is something that is a way of recycling the same exclusionary power dynamics that had led to war in the first place. And this notion that very often these wars were coming out because the nature of how power and resources and identity had been managed and structured in the state to begin with had locked in exclusion had locked in exploitation of an extraction of much of the population. And that was, you know, some of the systemic reasons why conflicts, violent conflicts wars were breaking out. And at that moment where things are in flux because of the conflict, at that moment when there is a process of negotiation, if you close it down so quickly in your efforts to reach a deal, even though it's very understandable that you need, you know, you want to end the violence, the horrors of war, but are you risking it, a risk of having it revert to the same cycles coming again and again? And I think that that was a lot of the mental model of mediation not just by the UN, but by many in the 90s and the 2000s. And I think we see this, you know, you'd have a, you know, a, a kind of a phase change in a way in the conflict of a, a new group. And of course, we know that 
within the first five years of the peace agreement at that period of time, especially ones that were not really held in place by extensive involvement um, and very expensive involvement of international troops and peace keeping and later peace building missions, they would often fail. So I think one of the things that I have felt really strongly at that time was that the way that we're approaching these challenges is insufficient because somehow the whole notion of finding a process that's capable of bringing a country into deliberating amongst themselves what is the nature of the country that they're wanting to live in? And, and of course, there's a real deal making that's inevitably is going to happen in there, right? These are moments, this unsettled moment is a moment if the process can capture it and hold it, where there can be a renegotiation of what's become called the political settlement. So, and from those observations, ended up doing a lot, what at the time in the early 2000s was something that had a hard time gaining traction, but is more inclusive uh, peace processes, ones that are able to bring in a range of stakeholders, a range of different identity groups, not just those who have taken up arms necessarily, although they also must be included. But those processes, what we know, are difficult. <laughs> we, talk, we studied a lot about places like South Africa, Guatemala, Northern Ireland, places that were able to do that and were able to design the negotiations, particularly those that ended up shifting the fundamental nature of the constitution itself that were able to kind of hold. And those ones took a long, long period of time. And I think that in some ways, these, while you see a number of places that have attempted and are attempting and are keeping and trying to do that, and that seems to be some of the most hopeful processes that we've seen, there's so many places where a kind of notion that we can enforce a peace upon people and the, the inability of those processes to really hold is something that has, I think, if anything, entrenched conflicts more deeply and are making them more prone to this kind of fragmentation and this notion that you can maybe pick off one party, the more amenable party, and exclude, you know, your preferred armed group and exclude the other armed groups who are ideologically more radical or who have alliances that are less acceptable, that ends up uh, having a splintering, fragmenting effect that complicates the process over time. But I think a lot of the geopolitical interests have tended to approach that way of doing peacemaking for, for many years. And then we can talk about all the other structural drivers globalization, um, the lag from the economic recession triggered in the 2008 collapse and all the pressures that built up, communications revolution, all of those other things obviously also complicate stuff. But I think the process of um, how peacemaking is done has also needed a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, I think what you're, what you're pointing to is a shift in the conditions under which peacemaking happens. And in the 90s and 2000s, perhaps, conflicts were more amenable to a, a pre-planned, top, more top-down approach to trying to implement a peacemaking strategy that preconceived the means and ends of that process. So the means would be a mediated approach using special envoy and 
delegates from the leading armed and unarmed factions, and the ends would be a democratic process, selection of human rights norms that needed to be lived up to, and a, a type of governance that was kind of the liberal democratic product. What is being critiqued so much more now, and Cedric de Koning writes really interesting things about this, is about the need to enable self-organization. It's another kind of term from complexity thinking. Self-organization of a process. So to look at the the health of a society and the the means and ends of peacemaking to emerge from the interaction between the parties themselves, which might not produce the type of product that the liberal Western institutions want to see, but it might be a much more sustainable type of bargain that is arrived at. I'm, I'm Although, and even then, and I'm not sure, actually, I think what I was actually trying to mention is I think in the 90s and the 2000s, that attempt didn't work for the most part. That was what was tried, but if we look back, especially once again, when we're thinking about systems thinking, it's often delays, right? So it right. Look for, looks like it has sustained, but actually if you look at what happens over time, mm-hmm. you'll see that it, it hasn't had those results. So I think that there's, there are some that managed to make that kind of a tr- transition, uh, Cambodia, let's say. You know, there are definitely some, but say the majority didn't. Actually, it was precisely the self-organizing ones that were not based on that model that mm-hmm. seemed to have lasted more. So, you know, so this is where I point to places like South Africa, Northern Ireland, Guatemala, others, even though the Guatemalan one, each of these has their own problems that continue. But nevertheless, in all of those, um, you know, really have a multiplicity of stakeholders from the country involved in those self-organizations. And the South Africans didn't want any external mediation whatsoever for precisely that reason. So I think would agree with you there. But I, I kind of, I think in the 90s, the dream of the liberal peace, I think, always was an illusion. Right. And I think this is a... Is a Not large, my dream. <laughs> <laughs> this is a larger debate in, in development more broadly. You know, I'm reminded of the whole planners versus searchers debate, if you're familiar with that, like the Sachs, uh, millennial villages, grand plans for development versus let's create, you know, build easterly, let's create conditions in which people can organically find Mm -hmm. and adapt their own solutions to. (laughs) The gardening metaphor again. (laughs) Gardening is is a metaphor that, that really binds this. And one thing that I'm reminded of when you talked about, you know, the deal that was made where someone became a minister of of mines, or you can imagine all of these deals that are made to get to yes, right, in the peace agreement, but all the problems that that creates later, I think it speaks to our tendency to use kind of plans, rigid plans and focus on agreements. And in a complex system, it creates so many unintended consequences that you have to deal with later. You see this in, in medicine and and it's kind of like this human tendency somehow to try and let's let's treat this violence, this symptom, but it's gonna create all these other problems that we have to deal with later instead of focusing on system health. What is the underlying structural problems that are giving rise to that property that we need to 
engage with. And I think that's the hope of complexity approaches is that we'll deal with it in a more holistic way. Absolutely. And I think that that is one of the things that is really where a lot of my work is now in terms of the kind of conceptual development of work. And I mentioned to you that I've been working on this project that I'm, I'm calling Addiction to Coercion, Understanding Conflict Habituated Systems and How to Transform Them. And I think that that is probably, my feeling is that that is in a way at the root of one of the problems that we end up having. Dealing with conflict in general is this notion, yeah, just kind of backing up a little bit here. Um, you know, one of the ideas that came out of conflict resolution that I think sometimes gets lost is this idea that you can deal with the same situation most of the time in very different ways depending on your, the behavior you approach the conflict with. And so on one hand, and you can see this all the time in marriages and friendships and business relations in others, relations between allies, that there may be very divergent interests. There may be very divergent goals. And yet because you're in a positive relationship, you decide to cooperate in figuring out how to address them. You sit down, there may be tensions, there may be things that are intractable, but you know that you need to stay with it and you know maybe sometimes put those things to the side because the relationship overall is going to, to work better. And that cooperative mindset really is the basis of healthy at every system level. On the other hand, if you believe, and this is where a lot of the folks that are kind of in the negotiation things that, you know, you can do a, a win-lose, you know, so cooperation is the win-win, right? Going back to the Roger Fisher and Bill Gurry win-win, um, integrative bargaining. But too often, there's an idea that if we push hard enough, we can prevail in our goals. But this notion that you can prevail unilaterally. And I think that that underpins so much of the most intractable conflicts is that if you can just push hard enough, you will get what you want and you will be able to, you know, force the other, your opponents to give in. And that is a kind of a coercive mindset in conflict. And I think that it's really existing down at the very basic mental models that we approach underpinning and setting up the system rules um, for, of, of a complex system. So it's replicated at all level. And I think, I think I first became really aware of this around the dilemmas. This is once again dating me, although I've I've seen this again and again, but in 1999, when the international community was to prevent Milosevic and the Serbs from doing another genocidal massacres in Kosovo, that we need to just bomb, <laughs> the, bomb Milosevic's uh, government and Serbian forces in Kosovo and in, in Belgrade to prevent another atrocity. 
And that, of course, raised you know, huge ethical dilemmas, but also for many who felt very committed to the responsibility to protect, it felt like these extreme measures needed to be justified. And for many, this felt like, okay, but this is in part because every earlier step in the long saga of you know the previous 10 years of trying to address the wars of the former Yugoslavia, the end of the negotiation of Slovenia's independence didn't address what was going to happen in Croatia or Bosnia. Same thing, negotiations over Croatia didn't address Bosnia or Kosovo. Everybody knew some, at some point it was going to be Kosovo. And at each point, the short term of we need to reach agreement on these situations now meant a delay in addressing what was going to happen inevitably in Kosovo. And so when you're addicted to coercion, it's so often this feeling like there is no other choice because we must have an urgent response to a severe problem now. And lacking any kind of constructive relationships with those that you're needing to force to change, you feel that there's no other choice than to try to vanquish your opponent. And furthermore, I think, you know, again and again, and once again, Native Summit has recently been um, completed, and it was this commitment to 4% GDP into military expenditure, which is a massive amount of the world's resources mm -hmm. um, into that, of these, the wealthiest, some of the wealthiest countries on the planet, that we have to invest in increasing your coercive capacity so as to be able to increase your ability to force the other <laughs> <laughs> so there's this whole system that ends up getting built. And this is what feels to me like the addiction to coercion. And I see that in relation to war and peace, but I also see that at really many, many other different scales of our human conflicts. That's fascinating. The Where does it lead if we are addicted to coercion and we increase our ability to influence through force or threat of force others to submit to our will, does that not just increase their incentive to do the same? And does it not just induce a reinforcing cycle in which we see our interests in a zero-sum game? Absolutely. That's exactly because, of course, it is, it is never just one side, quote unquote, that ends up needing to adopt this because this is the um, nature of the escalatory dynamics that end up happening. And I think in part it is this, it is partly rooted once again in these mental models that are based on unilateralism that I must do what I need to defend myself and I am justified to take what actions I need in order to protect myself. And then that definitely is reciprocated. So you see, you know, sort of the, the classic international relations security dilemma, you know, <laughs> where there's like, I interpret your actions as, as aggression. And so therefore I must respond with aggression. You interpret my actions as aggression. So therefore you respond with aggression and up the escalatory cycle goes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is what often entraps us. That is what entraps us into endless cycles of conflict that mean that our resource and attention are given to that rather than mm -hmm. to, to cooperation. And I think we've seen in history moments 
and experiences where that cycle is broken. And I think that that in a way is at the heart of a self-sustaining peace process is when there's the beginnings of realization of interdependency. And mm -hmm. so taking us back to the South African situation again, I think it was very much the case that over the time of negotiations, and I think we can credit people like Nelson Mandela and Stephen Biko and even earlier, um, many others who were the leaders in the Bishop Desmond Tutu in having the kind of vision of interdependency that brought their ethos into the negotiations there. Looking back even earlier, the European Union, you see how there was this fundamental shift in the whole mental model of relations that happened after World War II. And I think it was in two respects. One was within the countries themselves of Western Europe, there was this new social contract. And there was this kind of realization that the um, kind of capitalist system based, built on the foundations of feudalism, which had kept much of the population in many Western European countries in you know, really pretty dire conditions of poverty for years. But that was in the face of what was probably seen by many in the establishment at the time as the communist threat. It was like, well, we need to have a new social contract here. And that was when you began the social democracies of, of Western Europe. But then between the European countries, which, you know, had what, probably almost a millennia <laughs> fighting with each other, I mean, the novelty of the European project was just immense in human history because it meant, okay, we are going to cooperate. And we know that the cooperation is in our best interest. And that's a really, really profound shift in that system. And after shifting at that level of understanding, building institutions on the basis of it, um, I mean, you can argue about, you know, whether they went too far, whether there's, you know, there's all sorts of arguments and have, but I think the basic idea radically shifted that whole space, you know, had not ever really been seen in that way before. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can organize ourselves differently. Yeah. But too often, I think we forget that our interdependencies are an asset, that we can be more with each other together than by um, trying to coerce each other into giving us what each wants. You know, I see echoes of what you're talking about in so many different spaces right now i mean it, we are at a, a low ebb historically in interdependence and cooperation if we think about brexit but also the polarization in the united states mm. and on both sides the degree of vitriol and the calls to oppose leaders from both sides in restaurants and to see oneself in opposition, to see your identity, political identity, in opposition to your adversary. It's incredibly challenging and the, the President of the United States who's really championing an isolationist agenda, which is really the opposite of what you're talking about in terms of the need to see our interdependence. So my question would be, what is the pathway back for us? Mm. I mean, it's easier perhaps for us to submit to the easier narrative that we are tribes of people and we've got to protect our interests at the expense of, of others, right? 
it's a harder narrative to embrace that we're all connected and we're all interdependent. How do we get back there in our politics and our mental models? Mm -hmm. uh, once again, I, I really do wish I had that magic wand. Um. <laughs> well, we're working to develop well, feel... here on the Peace Building Podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. Please share it out. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel in some ways I'm in a little city called Stanton, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, we're just over the mountain from Charlottesville, Virginia. I was actually in Myanmar last summer, August 12th, when they... You know, what I think many people will see as a, a bellwether event of the um, Unite the Right March and the violence, the killing of Heather Heyer from that. And it's really not lost on me at all that partly what that was sparked around, that what was the rallying cry for that was um, a decision by the, the local city council in, in Charlottesville to remove the statue of a Civil War, U.S. Civil War General, um, Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And I have been witnessing, oh, and, and also Lexington, where the Red Hen instance is, is also just 30 miles down the road. Um, <laughs> to add to that, in our, our city, we have the only public high school's name is Robert E. Lee High. <laughs> So I have been a part of a group for a couple of years now that has been organizing uh, community dialogues, but has been around very open kinds of themes, uh, heritage and honor. How do we learn, how do we share and learn from each other's heritage, sharing food together, breaking bread events, these kinds of things. Interestingly, there's been a group of activists who have also wanted to change the name of the high school which is something that I very much support, and yet also has been this red flag for me of, you do this, you start talking about people's identities. It, it's interesting how much people organize around these identity pieces. And sure enough, um, over the last three months or so, the change the name, save the name uh, tension has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, we have now some like uh, flags all over town. And this is a town of 20,000 where people are very deeply connected with each other, like intergenerationally. We have save the name and we have but the name hurts crossing the lawns. And this is where we start coming to process. I have been trying to get a dialogue process going around the high school name, together, including together with the group that I've been doing these other dialogues with. And this group, which is very much run by the local African, led, has its leadership and origins in the local African American community, had really not wanted to take on that issue because I think they too knew what a, a flare-up it would likely provide. And the school board ended up hiring a group of people who were supposed to lead kind of a public dialogue process. And I, of course, went to it. And they organized it as a hearing where each person could, you could sign up in advance and each person could have two minutes to express themselves. <laughs> now, to the credit of my uh, fellow Stantonians, people did so in a fairly civil manner. But of course, what happens when you have something like that is, of course, people try to make the best arguments 
And people felt, I think, heard, but the conclusion was nobody had changed their mind. In fact, had become more entrenched in their views. And I think that that is happening more and more where I think part of the issue is that as a culture, we have not learned how to have processes in which we can hear each other and we can be accountable to each other. And what I heard with a lot of the folks, and now I think that there are some died in the wool racists who don't want the name to change, but also I think for a lot of people, there is a sense that this, this has been the name of the school for many generations. Many people came up and said, they were a grandparent, their child, their grandchildren are all going, they all have the same name on the diploma. There wasn't a problem with it before. Why is there a problem now? This kind of notion of who's imposing this? Are we supposed to be all politically correct now? What's the problem with it to begin with? And this sense of genuinely not understanding why it's a problem. And I think that partly that, and so, and we are able to actually have a conversation about that and about why it is hurting in a way that people can understand it or people who have grown up with it and like the name have a feeling that their identity is not somehow going to be eradicated in this process, that their own dignity can also continue to be honored. And I think part of the problem is, is that we, have never had a conversation since the end of the US Civil War in the 1860s about what happened in what about slavery. We've never had a conversation in the public square about slavery. I joined schools in the US and Virginia in 69, right after the end of the Jim Crow segregation era, right after the time of massive resistance in Virginia, which was refusing to implement the Brown versus Board of Education decision to integrate the schools. Virginia resisted for years and years and years. So I was of that first generation who went to newly integrated schools we never talked about the past. We never learned how to. Those who, the, the African-American children who were integrated, lost a lot of the coherence that they had had in their community of love and respect in the schools that they had had amongst the teachers and administrators who ran them and the communities that supported them. And we white children never knew the loss that they were experiencing, the dislocation, the displacement. We never talked about it then. We never talked about the history. And now it keeps coming up. And I think this is one of the things that I start to realize is how much in these conflict-saturated or the conflict-habituated systems, there will be a crisis and things will change. Maybe it's the end of a war. But then the societies reorganize themselves around the same principles once again. And so the principle of racial exclusion, racial fear, racial subjugation that was at the root of systems of power in the U.S. in general and in the South in particular has never really been accounted for and addressed. It has to the courts, but not necessarily in the mental models of a lot of the people who are here and who've grown up in this. So now I think we're trying to have a bit of an accounting, but it gets subject to the same old power system of politics, which sees it as a basis of manipulating as um, 
Michael Kimmel, who's written an amazing book called Healing from Hate, talks about of this sense of aggrieved entitlement. <laughs> He's talking about it very much in the sense of gender, but I think in racial relations in the US, it's also among white people who want to think that this should be our country for which we feel comfortable in. And it's a terrible legacy. Um, and, and it's sort of playing it, are you saying that we have privileges? Well, we don't feel that we have privileges. And not realizing how much privilege we have of being comfortable um, and not wanting to have that feeling being uh, robbed somehow by having the shame of our racial relations brought into light. So this is a microcosm in the US, but I, you see this playing out throughout much of the world right now, where you see this resurgence, Myanmar, which we know very well, you see the same thing happening with the uh, Muslim population there. You know, you, you can go any number of countries in Europe, see the same thing. And so somehow these deep, um, once again, I think these deep mental models of identities based on inferiority and superiority are one pillar one key driver in a conflict of habituated system. And then the other driver is uh, systems of power that are based on a political economy of extraction of wealth. And that these two really interface each other and drive a conflict system forward over time. And using this kind of otherness as a way of generating fear, which then justifies coercion. There's so much there, Catherine, that I would love to dig into. I can't wait to read and hear more about what you're going to produce with this. I'm struck by the idea that when you talk about the surfacing of mental models and when you're talking about people's ingrained mental models that they're not aware of, there's so many spaces now in which we can have our mental models reinforced. And those conversations are a lot more validating than a conversation with people that disagree. Those are the conversations that we need to be having. And like you said, we need to find ways of hearing each other. And it strikes me, and this I know this is something that Susan Coleman is thinking about as well, is about what processes we can put in place that enable us to hear each other and to hear narratives that are historical or present that we don't want to hear that confront us. And it strikes me that the political arena is the worst arena to have those conversations because of how tied they are to identity and power and whether there are opportunities at other levels of society and the types of conversations that you yourself are initiating, I think is an excellent example of that. I wonder if there's any vision of hope that you can give us based upon what we're talking about, the polarization of our communities, the use of coercive power and how that's trending. But what I feel is like a reaction from a lot of people that are thinking, we actually need better spaces for dialogue and to go back towards more cooperative behaviors. Do you see any seeds or gardening or growing of seeds that we can try and orientate ourselves around as a peace building community to build upon some of these bright spots that we can? Yeah. 
Yeah, I do. I do. And I must say, I also, I've been reading too many dystopian novels lately, which I think is, <laughs> is not helping. Beautiful, wonderful stuff by like Octavia Butler and, and people. <laughs> um, so I definitely oscillate between seeing the bright spots and not. But actually, I do. I think in some ways, you know, it, I mean, it's as cliched as it can be. These kinds of within crisis is opportunity, the uh, Chinese um, and the ground there, uh, I think uh, that's not quite the right, the character that means both in uh, Mandarin, I do really feel as strongly. And I think that there are more people and more realization of the need for dialogue than perhaps there was, you know, 10 years ago when many of these same things were brewing. We didn't see this so much after, uh, say, 2001. Uh, 9-11, 2001, you know, this kind of notion. And I think now I think people are realizing the urgency of that. And also, I think we do have the technologies. We do have the process methods for having that happen. And I was going to share a story about um, a church-based process of working with a denomination that has been deeply divided over issues of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, uh, that whole set of things. Marriage, but far beyond that. And I think out of the crisis that they experienced in that, there was a sense that they wanted to come together to see how they could be together in church together. And I had the honor of helping to design and facilitate a large group intervention with them. You know, 750 people in a room engaged in dialogue together on really, really deeply, deeply divisive issues but also how do we move forward together? And one of the things that people, again and again, there were some people who, who did not appreciate it, but I think a lot of people said, these are the kinds of conversations we need to be having. And new language was coming out of that that was helping them figure out a way forward. But also, one of the things that was perhaps the most interesting of all in the end of that process was that they realized how much they actually, through the process of dialogue, were reaffirming the core values that brought them into faith together in the first place. And that that is what draws them into their faith, but also into church community together. And I think that that's one of those, I feel very confident that even in my story of Stanton earlier, that if we can sit together and listen and hear each other, the core values that have us all love this place, and this place that we share together, that we create together, that we are of and from together, will help us keep held in this and I think that if we have enough of that and using enough processes that are conducive to that, which we know how to do at this point, I think we can get to a new place. The question is, the forces that are taking the urgent responses now, forces of frustration, the forces of self-aggrandizement, and this is on all sides of the spectrum that would much rather demonize the other than listen to the other, will not give us the space and time to be able to do it. I think that that's, that's the kind of tipping point we're at right now, which way we end up tipping. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that's a, <laughs> but as Kenneth Boulding always used to say, if it exists, it's possible. That so. sounds like a lovely way to end things. Thank you so much, Catherine. I've really enjoyed hearing this, as I'm sure that our listeners will as well. 
If people want to connect more with your work, we can include some information in the show notes. Thank you very much for the conversation. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a real honor for me as well. So thank you everybody for listening and thank you Catherine so much for participating and for your patience while we actually process this podcast. Listeners, if you're interested to learn more about Catherine's work, you can check out her faculty page on EMU's website. That's Eastern Mennonite University. And of course, you can check out our show notes for Catherine's bio and links to her work and publications. You can find the show notes on susancoleman.global or you can Google the Peace Building Podcast and you should be able to find it there. Thanks so much. We've got lots of great episodes coming up, so keep listening and bye for now.